Welcome to Peer to Peer, the podcast, brought to you by Rainer. Listen in as we hear from top surgeons having great conversations with their peers about hot and popular topics in ophthalmology. In this two-part series of Peer to Peer, the podcast, Dr. Ben LaHood sits down with Mr. Alastair Stewart to dive into the topic of blended vision and how to do it right. They'll discuss positive versus negative spherical aberration, eye dominance, how to target, and patient satisfaction. Dr. Ben LaHood, refractive cataract and laser vision correction surgeon from Australia, has gained international recognition for his extensive research on astigmatism management and biometry, which is regularly shared around the world. Mr. Alastair Stewart is a cataract and refractive surgeon at Optegra Eye Hospital, Hampshire in the UK. He is highly experienced in cataract and lens-based surgery and has presented on blended vision at congresses around Europe. Let's jump in. Welcome to another peer-to-peer podcast brought to you by Rainer. I'm your host, Dr. Ben LaHood. Today, we're discussing blended vision, and I'm joined by Mr. Alistair Stewart, who is one of the first Ray1MV implanters in the UK and frequently shares his experience with the IOL and the idea of true blended vision. Welcome, Alistair. Thanks very much for joining me today from the other side of the world to discuss the Ray1 EMV IOL. How are you? I'm great, Ben. Thank you very much. And thank you to Rainer for having me. It's a real pleasure. Uh, pleasure. Now, um, we all know about monovision, where we make one eye for distance, one eye better for near vision. And I think we've all heard Graham Barrett especially talk about aiming one eye for emetropia, the other eye for minus 1.25 hitting the sweet spot of gaining some near vision without compromising distance. But I hear that you're aiming for what we call true blended vision or enhanced monovision. So can you tell us how that works? Sure. So there's a lot of different terms for it out there. Um, I think modified monovision is quite quite a good one. Uh, blended vision is one that, that came from sort of the press beyond Zeiss marketing from from laser platforms, but essentially it's to do with incorporating spherical aberration into the system. So the way that I'll explain it to patients is that, that monovision, as you suggested, is, is it a, a method for treating presbyopia that stood the test of time. People have been using it for, for decades with contact lenses. And when you do it with contact lenses, or if you do it with monofocals in cataract surgery, standard monofocals, you've got no give in the system. You've got two completely single foci. So in essence, the distance eye does all of the work at distance and the reading eye does all of the work at near. And so there's no synergy between those two eyes. And that's what leads to the well-documented downsides of monovision that often hold surgeons back from using it. And that is tolerance. So approximately two thirds of people will tolerate monovision in that setup. People get um, cross blur or suppression of their distance size so the reading eye starts to take over and they lose quality of vision in their distance their intermediate vision isn't great because no eye is covering that so patients often explain they're struggling with computer distance so either they come very close to use their reading eye or sit very far away from the computer to use their distance eye so the other thing is then stereopsis. Patients can sometimes lose stereopsis. And if it's in, if you, if you have monovision for, for a long period with reduced stereopsis, you can actually break it to the point that it's irretrievable afterwards. So there are a lot of downsides to standard monovision that meant a lot of surgeons had, had almost been burnt by it. But what, what enhanced or modified monovision is, is incorporating spherical aberration into each eye. So spherical aberration converts, converts it from a single focus 
to a circle of least confusion. So essentially you can move away from that focus point without having a huge drop off in quality of vision. So it means that the distance eye will help the reading eye. It'll bring some useful near vision and intermediate vision to the system and the near eye will help the distance eye. So if you look at the reading vision of an eye that's set at distance that has spherical aberration, it's a lot better than say a cataract patient who's had a standard monofocal in it and a planar that patient, you know, is going to read sort of N48, N36 at best. If you've got a distance eye with seroclaboration, oftentimes they'll read N12, N10. So that's really what, how this works. And once the two eyes work together, when you've got that synergy, you improve on all those downfalls that we spoke about before. So the tolerance that I found is more like 98%. Um, and because of that, you can then extend the anisometropia. You can go further with the reading eye because the spherical aberration, that circle of least confusion will help it cling on to the distance eye and patients tolerate that a lot more. So my, my experience of using minus 150 came from doing a lot of presbyon. I was fortunate enough to work at London Vision Clinic where presbyon was conceived and did thousands of presbyons. And, and the standard protocol for that is to set the reading eye to minus 150. So I knew that these patients theoretically should tolerate it because it's the same system. It's spherical aberration control. So I had the confidence to go straight in at that and found from, from the go that patients were tolerating it really well and getting great results. Nice. That sounds really promising. Um, can I ask, and this might be a trade secret, you might want to give this away. This might build other people's <laughs> practices, but what do you do in terms of the practicalities of bringing patients back and planning their surgeries? Because I know that personally with some EDOF lenses, I will aim their first eye for emetropia, and I'll bring them back to see, look, how good is your reading vision? Do we need to aim your second eye for monovision? Sure. Um, but that's really inefficient. Uh, do you do the same or do you have enough faith in this IOL that you plan both surgeries, do them closer together and actually just give people blended vision? I, I, I do almost all of my surgeries, bilateral sequential, same day surgeries. Um, but what we do is we do a lot of tolerance testing beforehand. Now, that can be tricky in the presence of cataract. So it's much easier for patients who are undergoing RLE, refractive lens exchange, because they've got clear lens and you really can go to town with their simulation. When they've got cataract, it's more difficult. So when they've got cataract, I don't rely on the simulation quite as much. It's more about what the patient wants to achieve, because I use the, the lens in, in two different ways. I either use it both eyes set for planar or I use monovision. And it's more about what the patient wants to achieve. If they come in saying, you know, they found out they've got cataract and they've heard that it, having that surgery can potentially reduce their dependence on glasses and they're happy to wear readers on the occasion, I'm starting to think, well, maybe they'll do really well with plain OEMVs, get some useful reading vision and then wear plus ones on the occasion that they need them. Mm. So it's down to, to them sort of giving me a feeling of how much they want to go for, because if they have the monovision set up, we have to counsel them about neuroadaptation. It's going to take sort of two to three months, really, for that to bed in. And depending on what they do with their lives, there might be something that during that period is a bit tricky. So, for example, I treated a, a taxi driver relatively recently, and he did a lot of driving at night. So we started talking about, you know, the impact that if he got some distance suppression, some cross blur in the early periods while his brain was getting used to it, that might hold him back and it was his livelihood. But there are ways of getting around that. 
So I explain to patients that, you know, we can balance that with temporary glasses during that adaptation period very, very easily for them. And in cases like that, when I am anticipating that there might be a problem, I might even make up those glasses before we do the surgery. So let's say he's going to have right eye for distance and left eye for reading. I'll make him a pair of glasses that has no prescription in the distance eye and a minus 150 correction in the reading eye. I say, put these in the glove box of the cab. And then we'll see how you go. Now, as it happened, he kind of just hit the ground running when he had his surgery, adapted really quickly. But the glasses were there for him if he needed it. Mm. So I find that that's, you know, thinking it through that way is a lot more efficient than bringing them back one day and then doing it the other time. And I hope you're getting free taxis for life now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing okay with him. He's he's a nice bloke. Nice. Do you, you know, patients often ask me in that, temporary glasses idea will this uh postpone my adaptation what do you think about that they always ask me that and Mm. i'm not i'm not certain it does but i kind of go with the line that i kind of counsel patients that they need to they need to be sparing with their amount of use um i'll explain to them i I, whether it's true or not i'm not absolutely 100 certain but i will kind of lean on well you know you if if we do this we're starving your brain of what it needs to learn is usually my my line so that it's only to be used when they need it so if you're not a taxi driver and we're just talking about driving at night i'll say look put them in the glove box start all journeys without them on but if it gets tiresome let's say you've got a long journey or the conditions aren't great just pull over pop them on and you've got that fail safe there if you need it but nice. the more that you can do without them, the quicker your adaptation phase will be. Now, I haven't got any data on whether that's the case. It'd be quite a cool randomized control trial, I suppose. But whether you could get ethics on that, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but but I, I'm not, it's not based on any science, but I do tell patients to try and be sparing with it. And the other thing is that it, patients don't want to wear them either. If they've gone for surgery to get out of their glasses, their friends and family know that. So they're worried about then turning up for dinner the following week with glasses on. So they, they, they work with me on that. They're, they're quite happy to use them sparingly, but they, I think they get, they, they, they take quite a lot of reassurance from knowing that there are methods to help them during that period. Yeah, no, that's good. And I think, you know, your experience speaks volumes, you know, some, some of these things we probably don't need a trial on. I think yeah, knowing, knowing that you've done hundreds or thousands of these operations and, and that's what you've struck uh, gives me a lot more confidence than a, a published trial, to be honest. So that's good. Because the the other thing that's useful is is seeing these patients around about three or four weeks after surgery. So I explained before surgery that appointment is is to see how you're getting on. So we see them in the early post post op period in the first few days or maybe up to a week to check them anatomically to make sure that they're healing well and they haven't got an infection. But then the three to four week one is to see how are you adapting to your monovision. So, you know, we explain, look, if you're really struggling, you can come in before that. But generally speaking, that's when we assess how you are. And you'll get the few patients who are aware of their cross blur, but it's not getting in the way too much. But what I do for them is I show them what's happening. So let's say it's their distant side that they're struggling with. I'll take them out of the office and we look into the car park and look at a a number plate from 20 meters. And I say, you see that? And say, yeah, I can read it, but it feels a bit weird. And I take a loose lens from my lens box and just put a minus 150 over their reading eye. I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. I say, yeah, now look at your reading. And I hold the reading chart and I show them and say, look, that's that's why we're doing this. Because once I've put both eyes for distance, and it looks great. You can't read anything. And that yeah. kind of that that conceptualizes it for them and really helps them. Say, OK, I get what's happening now. 
and they sort of bed, bed into saying, right, I'll just get my head down yeah. <laughs> and neuroadapt over the next few months. And we then see them in the three month mark when the vast majority are completely there by that point. That makes a lot of sense. I remember being asked, what do I do with uh, troubled or difficult trifocal patients? And I say, I don't really have them because if you spend time to explain it, they're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, now, this might be a tricky question. I'm not sure about your optics background. So I'm putting you on the spot here, but there's been a lot of activity in the eat off space you know there's yep. a lot of different iols trying to achieve a range of focus in different ways some optical designs have been fairly mysterious and maybe that's put a few surgeons off them sure um sure. how does the ray one emv actually work so the ray one emv induces positive spherical collaboration that's what attracted me to it and and that's because when you consider spherical collaboration induction it's not just what the lens is doing it's what the patient brings to the table. So the total spherical collaboration after lens surgery will be what's in the lens plus what was innately in the cornea. So I will measure that on all patients before I use this lens. And that gives me an idea of where they're going to end up. Now, the distribution of spherical collaboration in patients' corneas is pretty tight. There's not much spread. So it's a normal distribution around about 0.2 microns on the positive side. So the vast majority of patients have a low amount of positive spherical aberration. So if you're wanting to induce spherical aberration, in my mind, you need to add more positive to that system so that you can take them to 0.3, 0.4. If you put a negatively aberrated lens in, you're going to move towards zero. So that's why I've always questioned, I've tried to ask this question to a number of, 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 pe- of people representing lenses that work with negative aberrations, mm. ne- negative spherical aberration. And I still haven't conceptualized it from anything that I've been told of, of why they still work. Because in my mind, it's moving them back towards zero. And it's the opposite of you want. Now, that might be the odd patient who starts with minus and giving them more minus is good, but they are pretty rare. So that's why I went to the EMV first is because I always thought, well, that the vast majority of patients, this is going to help me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you think about the the naysayers who would say, look, any aberration is an aberration. It takes away from a distinct focal point. And I'm a big believer in correcting astigmatism. And some people would say, look, residual astigmatism gives you a bit of depth of focus. And I would say, well, two blurry foci are no better than one good one. Um, What do you think the difference is with adding spherical aberration as opposed to adding other aberrations to people's vision it's how the brain tolerates it so when you when you leave astigmatism you end up with or if you have lots of coma yes sure you get extended depth of field if you measure a keratoconic patient they have a lot of depth of focus but that's because they've got highly aberrated cornea Um, it's not always a good thing so it's 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 about what the brain tolerates and also what's easier to control that's why spheric collaboration is, is, is the chosen one. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Join us for part two of this series in the next episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, where Dr. Ben LaHood continues his conversation with Mr. Alastair Stewart on blended vision and the Ray One EMV. For more information about this episode's topic and to read the show notes, visit the Peer to Peer hub at rainer.com forward slash peer to peer. Ray1 EMV has not been registered as an EDOF lens with the FDA, as it is not designed to satisfy ANSI Z80.35. Ray1 EMV is a new type of lens that does not have the drawbacks associated with EDOF or diffractive lenses. 
If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, please subscribe to our channel to be notified of new episodes. This podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The presenter's views are their own. Rayner does not endorse off-label use. Users must refer to the product labelling and instructions for use for Rayner products in all cases. Not all Rayner products are available in all countries. The full disclaimer can be found in the show notes.